You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. This morning, good to see you if it's your first time. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, one of the elders, feeling elderly this morning, a little tired, but uh, grateful to be here with you on this Labor Day weekend as we wrap up this little series uh, on a great book, the book of Habakkuk. So why don't we pray now and ask God for his help as we go to his word. Our Father, your word says, who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Spirit, I pray that you would instruct us from your word and teach us to find our stability in the Lord Jesus. He is the solid rock. Would you impress upon us the truth that he is the only solid rock? That when the earth gives way, he is our only firm ground. Establish us more firmly in him. Jesus, thank you that you ultimately preserve us to the end, firm in you. Ask that this would be pleasing to you. Would it be helpful to your people, Jesus? In your name, amen. So when uh, I was growing up, my family was not outdoorsy. We don't really like camping. The Bruces are not happy campers. In fact, we'd agree with Jim Gaffigan, who says the only happy camper is the person leaving the campsite. (laughs) That's why I'm here preaching on Labor Day weekend, because I don't want to go camping. I'd rather just be here. Uh, But I remember one time as a child, our family friends finally convinced us to go camping. Went up and joined them in Yosemite to hike Half Dome. And it was, (laughs) jeez, yeah. It was, it was fine uh, until we reached the last leg of the hike. And the cliffs got steeper and the trail grew narrower and the winds became stronger and the ground became looser and my legs started to wobble and my trusty Adidas Sambas didn't provide much traction and my feet started to slip and I was genuinely scared. I actually had to crawl to move forward. And as I'm looking around, I see these little, they look like beavers. They're yellow-bellied marmots. Have you ever seen one of these? They live on the top of Half Dome. And, and they're just so happy, jumping off of ledges onto smaller ledges, scaling these walls without a care in the world. It's like they're built to live in this very treacherous place. It's an amazing thing. Habakkuk gives us this striking image of the Christian life that there's times where we get wobbly. We falter. And and what's troubling about this is we don't falter because we sin. We actually falter because we obey. We do the right thing. We trust God. And yet life seems to go horribly for us. And the world seems to get worse. And the wicked seem to prosper. And and in that moment, God's people have often faltered. They they wobble and they ask why. And, And so the tension that Habakkuk articulates, the question is, when that happens, if not, not if, but but when our faith gets wobbly, what is the thing that gets us through? 
What will give your faith a sure footing in that moment? That's the question at the heart of Habakkuk. We've seen this is a unique prophet, isn't it? Because Habakkuk hears about God's plan and he doesn't automatically accept God's plan. He doesn't automatically reject God's plan. Instead, he argues with God about God's plan. He's incensed by the injustice he sees among God's people in Israel. And he says, God, what are you going to do about this? And God says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. and I'm going to send them to judge Israel. And Habakkuk goes, wait a minute, God. They are worse than us. We're bad, but they're worser. So, so how on earth can you use worser people to judge better people like us? That's chapter one. And then in chapter two, God provides the answer. Habakkuk needed a broader perspective because what God says is that everything Babylon sows, they're going to reap. That God is so great and so powerful that he can use this nation to judge Israel and then judge that nation for their sin and make everything right. And so in the end, the oppressors don't get the last laugh. Actually, we saw the oppressed do. They sing of Babylon's downfall as the exalted are humbled and the humble are exalted and the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's chapter two. And at this point, Habakkuk has no more objections. He moves from complaining to God, that's chapter one, to silence before God in chapter two. And now in chapter three, he is moved to sing praise to God in a renewed confession of faith. I love how the book ends. These words... God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. What's Habakkuk's resolution? The path before me will be treacherous. That's the high places. Wind, shaky ground, precipitous cliffs. That's what's coming, and yet he is convinced that when it comes he'll be fine. His faith will be sustained. God will make his feet like the deers or like the yellow-bellied marmots. He's confident that these shaky times that are about to come on Israel will not shatter his faith. Don't you want that? Don't you want that kind of resolve and perspective and confidence that ruin can come upon me, my faith won't be ruined. I'm going to be okay. That's chapter three. That's the perspective that Habakkuk gained. And as we see, it's a model for us. One of the fascinating things about chapter three is that it is both Habakkuk's personal prayer and this public confession of Israel's faith. Do you see that? Look how the book ends. To the choir master. There's musical directions for this thing. We see that little word selah, which is a musical term for pausing throughout this chapter. So this personal prayer of Habakkuk has become a model for who? For all of us. This is how you praise your way through treacherous times to keep your faith. What are we supposed to learn from this? Well, let's look. God reveals his plan to Habakkuk that he will sit on his throne in his temple. The earth will be silent before him. And now out of a renewed faith, Habakkuk prays this. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. I think that's a musical genre. 
The Hebrew means death metal or something like that. Um, I, I don't actually know. Nobody does. But it's a musical genre, and he prays this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk knows who God is. He knows the earth will stand silent before him, that he will set all things right, and he fears God. He fears God more than the Babylonians who are coming to judge. He knows that Babylon, the mightiest empire on earth, is just a pawn in God's plan to renew the world. He trusts in that and he says, now God, revive your works. What does that mean? Well, what does God promise? That he's going to act for the deliverance of his people, right? Habakkuk says, revive that. What does that mean? God, I know you've delivered us. And you've done it again and again and again. So please do it again. One more time, God. He, he trusts in what God has done to do it again. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But, but he trusts God to act that way because he knows what about God? He knows God's character. That's got to be one of the best prayers in the Bible, isn't it? In wrath, remember mercy. What is Habakkuk saying? God, even in the judgment that is about to come against us, remember your mercy towards us. He knows this is going to be bad. Babylon's coming. They're going to judge Israel. It's going to be national ruin. And yet Habakkuk can say, in the midst of that judgment against us, it must stem from what? Your mercy towards us. Why can he be so confident? Because he knows who God revealed himself to be. Remember Exodus 34 when God reveals himself to Moses and Moses hides behind the rock and God causes his glory to pass by and he says, the Lord, the Lord, and he ends by saying, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I will execute perfect justice. Remember what he says right before that? The Lord, the Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Here's what Habakkuk is saying. God, I know that even the most terrifying judgment against your people is ultimately motivated by your mercy for your people, and this must work out for our good. It must. William Cowper, the hymn writer, said, this is the hidden smile of God. That even in the darkest moments of our life, when we can't see God's face, we know God's heart. That whatever he permits must work out for our good and be motivated by a heart of compassion toward his people. That's the confidence that he has. So this is the petition. Do it again. Use this to deliver us. And now God answers Habakkuk for a final time with a vision that gives us the perspective we need. What's the vision we need? Okay, so here's the deal. You're walking on this treacherous path. You're in the scariest part of your life. Here's what you don't do. Don't look to the sides. Don't look at the cliff. Don't look down at how shaky the ground is. Habakkuk would say you look in three places. First, you look forward. Then you look back. Finally, you look up. If you're going to have sure feet and a sure faith, look forward, look back, and then look up. First, you look forward. When the path is treacherous, you have to keep the final destination in view. 
God has you on the path for a reason you're going to the summit. And the vista is so grand that the journey will have been worth it. God will win. God will make everything right. That's where you keep your focus. So Habakkuk prays this, and now God gives Habakkuk this revelation of himself. What does he say? God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the mountains. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. God gives Habakkuk a vision. What is it a vision of? Some scholars say this is a vision of what God has done in the past. Some say, no, 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 it's a vision of what God will do in the future. And here's the thing, they're both right. And we'll get back to that. But in essence, it's a comfort because it's a vision of what God will do. Remember, Babylon's coming to judge. Will God mete out judgment on Babylon? Yes. He will come from Mount Paran. That's this region in the south. He will come from the south as Babylon is invading from the north and his appearance will be like the sun. He will come from south to north. He will rise from east to west. His brilliance will shake the earth. Creation will respond in worship. In fact, the light of God's presence is actually a veil because God dwells in unapproachable light. He's that glorious. And as we'll read later, the sea trembles, the earth trembles, even the mountains tremble. These, these mountains that seem eternal, that seem everlasting, they, they shatter in the presence of God and it demonstrates that God is the only one who endures eternally. So creation trembles. And the nations tremble. The lands of Kushan and Midian, those were nomadic peoples. They're not described here as friends of God or foes of God. They're just bystanders. And they see God march with his armies. And as they march, the peoples of the world are overwhelmed and they are afflicted. God is coming to judge the nations. Creation does his bidding, even plagues and pestilence. God is the creator. He's coming in wrath. Why is creation shaking Habakkuk answers the question, verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, God, are you really mad at the created order? No, creation just bears witness to what God is about to do. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging, raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for who? For the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. 
you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. See, creation is just bearing witness to what God is going to do, that he's going to come in anger against the oppressors of his people, against the anointed Israel's king, against, that have come against Israel, the people that are devouring the poor, that are oppressing. God will decisively defeat them. He will crush them. He will disable them from head to toe. And so why is creation so involved in this? Why are mountains trembling in the earth and the seas? Here's why. Because God wants to show us that the God who fights on behalf of his people is the maker of heaven and earth. That he's God of gods and Lord of lords and even the scariest things in this world are ultimately pawns in God's plan. That he is the maker. He will even use creation to fight on behalf of his people. That's the vision. And now when we read a vision like this, we have to guard against getting too literal. God is not going to shoot literal arrows at the Babylonian armies. He doesn't ride on a literal chariot from the mountain range of Paran. The idea is this, that, that God will use the forces of creation to defeat the oppressors of his people. And here's the thing, the sweep of what is said is so grand and glorious, this can't be fulfilled just by Israel just by Babylon, just by God judging Babylon. Because remember, chapter 2 says that the whole earth is going to be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So this is a picture of God working everything out, uh, of establishing justice on the earth forever. That's the vision that God will do this and God guarantees it. And that's why it's such a comfort to us. See, the vision that God gives isn't just, I'm going to judge the Babylonians. I'm going, to judge, it's, I'm going to judge every oppressor. I'm going to judge all evil. I'm going to make every wrong thing right so that the world is covered in my justice and glory. That's the destination. That's where we're going. Family, that's the only destination that will keep you going. That's it. I think sometimes it's hard to believe that that's our future. But think about it this way. Is there any human hope that can sustain you through treacherous times? There's a lot of problems with earthly hopes. I was thinking about it this week. You know, one of the problems with earthly hopes is this. You never get resolution in this life, do you? Like, let's say you get some earthly win, some success. You know the problem with success? You know what it creates? More problems. It, it, nothing ever gets totally fixed on this side of eternity. So we just had a newborn. We've got Nate. Nate's got indigestion issues, so he's up at night. And I've had quality time with Nate. <laughs> and I've had quality time with Netflix late at night because he's up for a long time. It's Nateflix. That's what I, I call it because I have now watched every sports documentary under the sun because I'm just up with him. And let me tell you something. Winning isn't that great. That's what I've learned. It's not as great as you think. Think Michael Jordan and that scene in The Last Dance. They win a championship. He's there. He's smoking a cigar. He's playing the piano. And everyone around him is saying, how are we going to do it again next year? On the night they win. And he's like, smoke a cigar, enjoy this for five minutes. That's the problem. Once you win, there's unbearable pressure to what? Do it again. 
That's why Urban Meyer wins. He walks into the locker room, celebrates. He walks back into his office and starts looking at his recruitment list for next year. Because he says, now we're a national championship program. And now that's the expectation. Now we've got to do it again. And then he quits for health reasons because he's under so much pressure. Like all of your earthly success will create a tremendous amount of problems. Every win will. Look, even if God did amazing things at Creekside, it would create tons of problems. It would. Let's say 500 people get saved in the next year and our church doubles. Conversion growth, right? Revival. You know, even if that happened, people would be like, it's just not the same church. It's not as intimate. Got all these parking problems. The neighbors are mad. We don't have enough leaders. People aren't giving. They're just taking, right? Like that? There would, I know who you are, so the Eeyores, that's what I would be saying anyway. <laughs> right? there's, there's problems with any great thing that happens. Now that doesn't mean don't have ambition. Don't strive for success and things. Just don't set your hope in it. Because that summit is not a summit and it just creates a more difficult mountain. It's all it creates. You'll never find contentment in that. Setting your hope on earthly success, it never satisfies. Setting your hope on a societal goal and thinking humanity is going to bring it. That's another problem. Look, people have trouble trusting in God to make things right. Are you going to trust in humans to do that? Look at the track record. I do not have faith in humanity to fix humanity's problems. They have been gloriously good at not doing that for all of human history. Ultimately, this hope that things will just progress, it's not going to bring resolution. Here's the other problem with it. Let's say you just put your hope in progress, right? That's what everybody today, just progress. We're marching towards something, some ideal, and humans are going to get there. They won't, but, but even if they did, that doesn't account for human history. Even if we reach some imagined utopia, you go through this whole journey to reach this world, whatever that is that people are thinking is going to happen. But then you have to ask like, well, why did we go through all of that? (laughs) What was the point of human history to get here? There is no answer for that apart from God. Apart from God who gets you to a summit and a hope that doesn't just get you to a perfect world, but makes sense of everything that happened before and enfolds it into a story that makes sense and made it worth it. Only God can do that. And this is why it's the only hope that can sustain us. And so even if this seems hard to imagine that this is God's future, it's the only future that will sustain you through the hardship of your life. So treacherous times, you look forward to a a certain future. But let's address that problem, right? Because the problem is this, like how do I know God's going to do it? How do I really know that this is the future that I will have where everything sad comes untrue, where things are right? This is where the Old Testament would say the only way to look forward confidently is to do what? You look back. You look back to what God has already done again and again and again. And if he did it before, he's going to do it again. And so the only confidence comes from looking back in order to look forward. Like I said, This vision is complicated because in one sense it tells what God is going to do, but in another sense it just tells what God has already what? Done. 
This vision is filled with echoes of what God has already done. Let me show you. So, so God appears at Mount Paran. You know where Mount Paran is? That's where Sinai is. So, so it's looking back to where God already appeared to his people. God fights as a warrior in brilliant light. That's what Moses sings about. In Exodus 15, that's what the psalmist sings about in Psalm 77. God sends plagues to fight for his people. Have we seen that before? In the Exodus, when God delivers his people. The nations tremble as God marches through the world. These bystanding nations shake at the power of God, which is exactly what happened to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. The sun and moon stand still, just like they did in Joshua's day. God delivers through the sea and from the sea. And that sounds like Exodus 15 and the Red Sea. And that sounds like Judges 5 and Deborah. And it sounds like Psalm 77 when God rides upon the sea and yet his footsteps are not seen. Creation trembles. That image is all throughout the Old Testament. And, and so the question is this. Well, is this what God is going to do or is this what God has already done? It's what God always does. God delivers his people through judgment because of his mercy, using the created world to bring it to pass. Remember when Habakkuk prayed? He said, God, revive your works. Not just God, do a new thing, but do a new thing in accordance with everything you've already done. And you only get confident that the good thing is coming when you look back and see how many times God delivered again and again before. This is the Old Testament way of facing the future. It's not to look forward, it's to look back. In fact, that's why next week we're starting a series on Deuteronomy. I promise, it's not the whole book, just a thematic series. But we're going to look at what Deuteronomy says about remembering. Remember, remember, remember. Because that's the only way to face the future confidently is to look back. Look back. So what is God saying here? He's saying that if you want to know what I'm about to do, look at what I've already done. In fact, I think Micah 7.15 is a great theme for this passage. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things, says the Lord. I am the God of the Exodus and I will deliver again and again and again. That is what God has saying. What does that mean for you practically? It means this. You know, we can look at this in the history of God's people. We've got to do it in our own lives, too, and spend time just looking back. Westerners are too forward-looking. We are. It's always about the future, always about progress, always about the next thing. They ever just stop and say, what has happened? And what have we learned? I have been prayer journaling for probably 15 years now, and I've kept every prayer journal. It's great. And it's very instructive. You know why? Because I can look back at every treacherous time I went through. And in retrospect, it never seems as big now as it did then. Never. Doesn't mean everything got resolved. Doesn't mean everything got worked out. But it means, oh, God actually did sustain me through that. But you never see it in the moment. You never see the way God is sustaining you through the moment, building your faith, working things out till you look back. 
I, I, I look back and some of them seem really silly, like, man, I had 24-year-old problems back then, and now I've got 39-year-old problems that seem insurmountable, but when I'm 60, I'm gonna look back at my 39-year-old problems and be like, oh, they're not that bad compared to my 60-year-old problems, right? That's just how life works. But the point is this, when we're in the midst of suffering, life gets very what? Narrow, myopic. We, we, we can't see where we are in the story. And so the key is to feel what you feel, to pour out your complaint to God, to go to him, but to remember, I don't know how this works out. I don't. I don't exactly know where I am in the story, but I know where I've been. And I know what God has done. And I will recount what God has done for me to trust where I'm going. Does that make sense? So that's the next thing. Look forward, and if you're having trouble looking forward, look back. And ultimately, look back to what God has done for you in Jesus because that's his guarantee that he's going to get you through it. And so treacherous path, don't look to the sides, don't look down, look forward, look back. And now as you're walking, counterintuitive, you don't look down, where do you look? You look up. You look up. Here's what you do. You say, okay, God, I know where you're taking me. You have a track record that proves you'll get me there. And so that means that whatever I'm going through now, whatever it is, however hard it is, however inexplicable it is to me, it must work out for my good. It must in some way take me from here to there. So I know where I am in the story. And so I don't need to know how this works out to know what? That it works out. That it works out. And that's where Habakkuk lands the plane. He says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That's an honest response to God, isn't it? Because what does Habakkuk know? Horrible things are coming for him and for the nation of Israel. He knows that, right? And he knows that God will judge, but does he know how all this works out? No. He knows that we're going to get judged. It's going to be national ruin. God is somehow going to use this to defeat our enemies. That's all I know. And his response is a panic attack. He trembles. He convulses. And yet, this is what faith looks like. Because what does he say? And yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. It's such an interesting phrase because it's not clear in Hebrew what he means. He could be saying, I will wait for judgment to come upon Babylon. Or he could be saying, I will wait for judgment to come upon us through Babylon. And it's not clear. But, but that makes sense, doesn't it? Because it's not clear from Habakkuk's perspective. Judgment is coming. It's going to come upon Israel and it's going to come to Babylon. I don't know how all this is going to work out. And yet I will quietly wait even as it terrifies me. Family, like faith is not this stoic detachment from reality. It just goes, oh, whatever. It's going to be fine. Just look on the bright side, right? Just... No, like this is faith. He has faith and he has a panic attack. And yet he's waiting on the Lord. Jesus sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He physically convulses at the horror of what's coming and yet he waits on the Lord. 
That is faith, is looking up in that moment and waiting for the day of trouble. That's what he's doing. And now he becomes the model to us. Because remember what God said in chapter 2. Wait upon me and my righteous shall live by what? Faith. God says, wait upon me. And Habakkuk says, I got the lesson. I'm waiting upon you. You will arise like a warrior. You will settle accounts. I don't know how it will work out, but I know that it will work out. And so he convulses. He has a physical response. He waits. And then finally, he praises. And he prays this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, I've seen what you've done. I know where we're going, and I know that somehow this must work out for our deliverance, and so I praise you for that, even though I have no idea exactly what I'm praising you for, (laughs) other than that you are my strength, you will use this to confirm my faith, and so I rejoice even if. That is faith, even if. And now Habakkuk gives us this ascending calamities. They get worse and worse, right? If Israel didn't have figs, that's a bummer. That was a delicacy. No dessert in Israel. No grapes, no wine. That's a bummer. It's a live. Olives, we use that olive oil to cook. We actually need that. And we use it for fuel, for lighting, no lighting. That's going to be a problem. The fields yield no food. Okay, now we're talking about starvation. If the harvest doesn't come in, we're, we're, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble. And if there's no flocks in the folds, well, that's our whole economy. And we have no wool, and we have no animals to till the ground. And so, so if that happens, it's starvation, and then it's, it's national ruin. And Habakkuk says, even if it happens, and in fact, I know that it will, I will rejoice in God. Don't you want that perspective? I want that perspective um, because, look, I no longer expect God to fulfill my dreams. I don't. I think there's things I want, there's things I long for that I want to see happen, but I don't set my hope on those things. Because it's foolish to set your hope on things God never promises to give. In fact, Jesus promises just the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. Trouble. That's not the promise that Christians like to name and claim. (laughs) But you can bank on it. You will have trouble, not because you're a sinner, but because you're following Jesus. If you want to become like him, you have to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And a servant is not greater than his master, which means if I'm following him, I will go through betrayal and rejection and heartache and false accusation and suffering and ruin. From an earthly perspective, it did not end well for Jesus. 
And yet that's the path to resurrection is through the cross. And so when you get to a place of inexplicable suffering, it just means you're close to him because you're walking the same path he walked and you have to to become like him. And so I never want to trust Jesus for things he never promises to give me. He promises he'll be with me through it. He promises he's going to make me like him through it so I can be the kind of person that can endure anything and come out better and come out more like Jesus because of it. That's it. That's following Jesus. That is not a bug of following Jesus. It's a feature of following Jesus. And so we rejoice because we know God is working on our behalf in that moment. In fact, when you run into the inexplicable suffering, that's the sign that God is doing his best work in us because we know this is necessary to become like Jesus. The ultimate way we know it will work out it is because of the cross. Because think about it, with the inexplicable things you're going through, think about Habakkuk. God is going to use Babylon to destroy our nation, and he's going to preserve our nation, judge Babylon, and this is a world. How does all this work out? It's amazing what God says in this passage. He, he says he's his arrows are enemies of God. But it says in verse 13 that those arrows are the enemy's own arrows. In other words, God is going to use the weapon of the enemy against the enemy to defeat his people. And we see that in Jesus. That Jesus comes and goes through seemingly inexplicable suffering and loss and pain and the greatest injustice any human has ever faced did not deserve any of it and then the powers of darkness wield their worst weapon against him, death. And that's the weapon God uses to defeat death. Jesus turns the weapons of his enemies back on them by death, defeats death, exhausts the power of death. And in that moment, God fulfills this vision because the ground shakes and the sky grows dark and all of creation seems to grow undone at what is happening as God enters into judgment against his enemies. But in wrath, God remembers mercy because he remembers his people and the wrath falls on Jesus so it doesn't have to fall on us. And for the disciples watching it, it couldn't have made any sense at all. And yet it is the moment where evil is decisively dealt with. If that is true, then you can get through the hard thing in your life. And you can trust that God has a purpose in it that you cannot understand, but that will be used for his glory and your good. Let's pray. So God, I realize I can say all these words and yet it doesn't feel easier. 